0: Well, again, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being with us uh, this morning. My name is Thomas. For those of you that I haven't met yet, uh, lead pastor here at West Bowles, and we're just honored that you're with us, especially if it's your first time, first time in a long time. As Ryan said, we've got a special gift for you out front. Uh, grab that full of information about our church, our community, the Christian faith. Hopefully, we can get you more plugged in, uh, but if you've been here for a while, thanks for coming back. Appreciate that. Hey, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled, The Story. And it's a series that's based on this premise that when God first spoke creation into existence, he more or less began telling a story. It's the greatest story of all time, in fact, a story about love, a story about loss, and a story about eternal life. And the amazing thing about this story is that we don't just have to read this story, we don't just get to read this story, but each and every one of us is an intricate part of the story. We have a role to play. So if you haven't already, go in the foyer at the Welcome Center, grab your copy of this resource. What it does is it puts all of the scripture in chronological order for us, helps us to see how all the stories connect and how we connect to them and vice versa. So I'm excited about that. We've got a ton of things to talk about this morning. So let me pray for us as we dive into chapter 24. God, speak to us now. As Mariah said, we believe you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe you spoke in the past, that you continue to speak today, and you have chosen and will speak to us forever. So we ask that now in this moment that you will speak, that we will each hear a unique word that that we need to hear from you, and that it will change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to take you back to my childhood for a second. I want to show you one of my favorite TV sketches of all time. Chances are you've seen this before, but this brings up some fond, fond memories. Check this out. One of these things is not like the others. One of these doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others before I finish my song? And now I'm gonna sing. You look. <laughs> I asked Rebecca to do that live on stage, but she just wasn't feeling it for some reason. Catchy little tune, though, isn't it? One of these things is not like me. I'm not going to do it too loud. I'm kind of embarrassed. But but think about this. For about 30 years, a Jewish man named Jesus lived in a little backwoods town called Nazareth, worked as a carpenter. There wasn't anything all that special about him. He was just like everybody else. But as we're about to see here in chapter 24, several things are going to happen in rapid succession, that will prove he is not like the others. (laughs) This morning, I want to try and summarize the earthly ministry of Jesus by looking at three things that made him so unique, so different, so fascinating, and so magnetic in a good way and a bad. I want to look at his miracles, his message, and his ministry. Let's just dump right into it. Last week, Nathan shared with us the story of Jesus turning water into wine. This is the top of page 326 in your storybook. It says this, What Jesus did here in Cana, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his identity. So it sounds like, based upon what John is saying, that up until this point, Jesus lived a rather normal life. He did what all other little Jewish boys and girls did at the time. He memorized the Hebrew scriptures. He went to the temple for special occasions. He learned the family trade, which for him was carpentry. There was nothing strange or out of the ordinary. Although I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there there were some second century writers who came up with some fanciful stories about the childhood of Jesus because they just thought, surely Jesus had some fun being God as a boy. I mean, who couldn't, right? Who could resist the temptation? There's a story once when Jesus makes a pigeon out of clay, basically Play-Doh, and then breathes life into it and it flies off. There's a story of when Jesus heals the foot of his close friend after they get in an accident with an axe. Then my personal favorite, the story of Jesus coming to the defense of his family by striking their next-door neighbors blind and deaf because they complained too much. (laughs) Parents, tell me you wouldn't want to have that in your back pocket. Like, Jesus, would you go handle this for us for a second? Now, it's fun to think about those things, but they simply aren't true. Jesus did not go around using his powers as a child like a Marvel comic book character. What happened here at the wedding was a first, What happened here at the wedding was monumental because what happened here at the wedding began to reveal his true identity. And what happened here at the wedding started the countdown to the cross. So the first miracle, turning water into wine, it was the first, but it definitely wasn't the last. As you read chapters 23, 24, and 25 of our storybook, we move from one miraculous moment to another. In chapter 23, Jesus casts out demons. He heals Peter's mother-in-law from an extremely high fever, Then he heals a man with leprosy, which was the most disgusting, the most defiling, the most disgraceful disease of the time. And man, as if that wasn't enough for one day, he goes and heals a man who had been paralyzed his entire life. As you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we move from one miracle and one healing to another. In fact, a third of the Gospels revolve around Jesus healing people. So top of page 330, I think, sums it up perfectly for us. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed, the whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. I mean, can you imagine if you heard about some guy in Fort Collins or Boulder? Like, rumor got out there was some guy up there healing sick people. He was going into hospitals and getting people out of wheelchairs. He was going into psychiatric wards and, and curing people of schizophrenia. Can you imagine if you heard that? We'd talk, talk about, like, yeah, it's Boulder. Right? Like Fort Collins, like little redneck, not sure what's going on up there. But then what if a great friend came back to you and was like, "Nah, I saw it, man. What if a family member who had cancer came back and said, I don't have cancer anymore. What would you do? Would you not want to flock up there? Would you not, would you not hop on the highway this afternoon, even right now in this moment, and say, I've got to go see this guy? That's exactly what was happening in Jesus' day. And that's why the people said what they did on the page Uh, Middle of page 331, we've never seen anything like this. No, you haven't. None of us have. In fact, the world never had. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Chapter 24, we read about some of the most incredible things ever witnessed in all of human history. On page 343, the disciples are terrified because a, a large storm is about to capsize their small little boat. And Jesus is more or less kind of crashed out on the couch over in the corner. And by the time they wake him up, he sees what's happening and he says this. He rebukes the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Story found in Luke 8. Luke 8. As soon as they get out of the boat, a, a man who has been demon-possessed, which maybe, by, by all counts could have been 2,000 evil spirits. This man couldn't be held down by chains. He had to be banished to the hills to live with the wild animals in the caves. Well, After calming the storm, Jesus comes and he calms this man's soul. With the same authority that he rebuked the waves, he rebukes the evil spirits, and the man is healed instantly. On his way home one day, on the bottom of page 344, a large crowd had gathered around Jesus. They were all pushing and shoving. Everyone wants to get a glimpse of this miracle man. Well, there's one woman there in particular. She's had a menstrual, a bleeding problem, for most of her adult life. If you know anything about Jewish customs, then then bleeding and sexual impurity, those are not a good combination. That's a double whammy for disgrace. She's so desperate, she says, if I could just touch his clothes... Maybe something would would rub off on me. So most likely, Jesus is is wearing a a prayer shawl, something like this. He has it wrapped around his head. And as you can see, there's some very long strings on the bottom of this. So Jesus has this around his head, and those strings are hanging down. The woman says, I just want to touch. Jesus didn't wear a lapel mic, obviously. But she says, if I could just touch the cloak, If I could just touch the strings... On the bottom of his cloak, maybe I'd be healed. And guess what she does? She goes and she touches. It instantly, she's healed by this miracle man named Jesus. A few hours later, Jesus is on his way to a religious leader, uh, his house. The guy's name is G, uh, Jairus, and, and Jairus' daughter had fallen ill. But by the time Jesus gets there, she's actually passed away. So he goes into the house, and at the bottom of page three forty-four, we read this: He takes the little girl by the hand and he says to her, Talutha cum," which means, "Little girl, I say to you." get up immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around she was 12 years old let me read this at this they were completely astonished at this they were completely astonished you think astonished doesn't even begin to describe it amazed is an understatement astounded doesn't do it justice but there's no word in the english language or the hebrew language that would do it justice how do you describe the indescribable And we go from story to story to story. After this, Jesus heals two men who had been born blind. A few days later, he takes one kid's sack lunch and he feeds 5,000 men, not to mention possibly 10,000 other women and children. Jesus, Mary's little boy. Jesus, the guy that fixed your your bench. Jesus, the guy you played pickup basketball with down at the park. Jesus, that guy. He's not like the others. He is not like the others. So what do we do with all of these stories? Why do the gospel writers include so many miraculous stories about Jesus' ability and desire to, to heal and to help? Why do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spend so much time telling us Jesus, that Jesus, the guy you thought you knew? Well, you don't, he's not like the others. He's got power over natural disasters. He's got power over disease. He's got power over death itself. Well, for me it boils down to two things. Why all the miracles? The gospel writers want to show us two things. One, God can. And two, God cares. See, God can do the miraculous. Now, I can't make sense of exactly when or exactly how it happens or why it happens, but I just know that He can. When Jesus was on the earth, He didn't eradicate or explain away all evil or all pain or all suffering, but I know that He can. God can control the weather. Jesus proves. God can heal a broken body. God can make something out of nothing. God can liberate you from bondage. He can set wrong things right. He can repair, renew, and restore all things. He can do those things. Jesus proves it. And one day he will. See, the miracles give us a little glimpse into what life should be like and ultimately what life will be like. God can take our brokenness and our messiness and our darkness and just our S, whatever it might be, and he can bring life and light and love and hope and joy into it and out of it. See, God can. But more important than that is the fact that God cares. See, Jesus never, never once, not a single time in all the Gospels, refused a personal request for help or for healing. I had a pastor friend who was kind of mentoring me when I first entered the ministry, and Sunday afternoons was his family time. He's like, I don't do anything with anybody except my family on Sunday afternoons. So people would call him in a crisis on Sunday afternoons. Hey, I'm struggling. Hey, I'm in this dilemma. Hey, I need your help. And he would ask a simple question. How long have you been dealing with this problem? Like, oh, it's been probably three years, four years. He's like, great, it can wait till tomorrow. Click. Jesus never did that. Jesus never said, I can wait till tomorrow. You're not important enough for me right now. I've got other priorities that are more important than you. He never did that. Why? Because God cares. From turning water to wine, which seemed like a kind of a crazy way to start your public ministry, well, it was all about saving that little couple from disgrace, to walking on water for the disciples to save them from drowning, from pulling that blind man aside out of the crowd, to noticing that bleeding woman in the crowd, he cared. He always turned his attention, he always turned his focus, he always turned himself towards people, not away from them. However insignificant the problem, however enormous the problem, Jesus Always cared. That's because the Father cares. But in addition to showing that He can and that He cares, I think the miracles show us one other thing that leads us to the thing that makes Him different. You see, okay, He can and He cares, but get this, He's coming. He's coming. That leads us to His message. If I were to ask you what the essence of Jesus' ministry was, if you had to summarize all of His teachings into one line, how would you do it? What would you say? Some might throw out love, right? He came to show us what love looks like or to teach us what it means to love God and love others. Some might say, well, it had to do with, with being good and, and being better, being a good person and a, and a good neighbor and, and a good religious, God-fearing individual. <sighs> See, here's the thing. Now, I wasn't alive at the time, so I can't, I can't verify this with absolute certainty, but I just can't imagine that the Romans would kill a guy for preaching love and, and, and goodness, I mean, think about this. It'd be like if you were watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood one day. We're going old school with the, with the kids' programs this morning. You're watching this guy, right? And all of a sudden, in bust a SWAT team to take him out. How dare you tell people to be nice? Right? Like, I don't think you'd get in trouble for that. I just don't think people would want to kill you for saying love others and be nice to them. You'd be crucified for preaching something more scandalous. You'd be crucified for preaching something more shocking, crucified for preaching something more subversive. And that something seems to be found on page 333. At this, it says, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God appears 53 times throughout Jesus' ministry. It seems to be one of his favorite things to talk about. It's always on the tip of his tongue, always on his lips. He tells people the kingdom has come, he tells people the kingdom is in their midst. He tells people what the kingdom looks like. He tells people where to look for the kingdom. He tells people how it works and how to enter into it. He even defines his entire purpose for coming in light of the kingdom. Look at Luke four forty three. I must proclaim the good news of what? The kingdom of God. That's why I came. That's why I was sent, for this very purpose. Gordon Fee, one of the wisest New Testament scholars I've ever read, says if you don't understand Jesus in light of the kingdom, then you don't understand Jesus. They go hand in hand. This language Kingdom of God, it seems kind of odd to us. It was like a, you know a, a B-rated movie back in the early 2000s. and what do we do with the kingdom of God? Well, most of us assume that kingdom means like a territory, a place where a king rules, right? Like his palace. But that's not what it meant in the first century. in the first century it didn't necessarily mean a place or a palace. it meant a king's power. It meant his authority. it meant his rule and his reign. So when saying that the kingdom of God was here. Jesus is saying that God's power is here. Other gospel writers say the kingdom of heaven. Well, that makes sense. The power of heaven is here. The power of heaven is now here on the earth. It's if Jesus is saying God's strength, God's might, God's power, the one who rules heaven itself, he's coming. He's coming here. He's coming to earth. That's what the miracles proved us. It's one thing to say that God's coming, God's going to be here any minute. Well, what are you talking about? Let me show you what I'm talking about. And he heals. God's coming. God's rule and reign is going to break out on the earth. Let me show you. Woman, get up. Deaf man, start to hear and speak. Right? The kingdom is coming and the miracles prove it to us. Now, this would have caused all sorts of reactions from different people. Let's say we're Roman. Let's pretend that we're Romans for a second, okay? Not sure exactly how you play the part or how you get into that mindset, but let's pretend that we're Romans, Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the gospel that the kingdom of heaven is here. Well, that's an interesting thing to say, Jesus. That's an interesting way to phrase it. Rome already had a savior and a king. His name was Caesar. And this king already had a gospel message. That's exactly what we call the news of Rome expanding its territory. And the people already pledged their allegiance to a kingdom. We call it Rome. So, so don't tell me you've got a gospel message about a king and a kingdom. We've already heard that. We already have that. Thanks, Jesus, you're a day late and a dollar short. Jesus says, no, 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 There's another kingdom coming, a new kingdom, a better kingdom, and the kingdom of Rome is now going to be replaced. He was saying the rule and the reign, the power, the potency of Caesar and his army, yeah, it's not all that anymore. It might have been impressive, but in all actuality, it's about to be undermined. It's about to be taken over by another It would be as if we said something like the president, the senate, the house, the constitution, they're all fine and good, but they are subservient to a much greater law, a much greater king, a much greater ruler. See why the SWAT team might roll in? Mr. Rogers ain't just talking about being nice. He's talking about Rome and the way of life and the way you've been living. It's all gonna change. It's all gonna be flipped upside down. All right, so we're not too happy if we're Romans hearing this kingdom of God message. Let's say that we're Jews for a second. Again, not sure how you get into role, but just imagine for a second that you're a Jew. Kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. This is great news. This is something that we've been praying for daily for thousands and thousands of years. This is Old Testament prophet language about a kingdom coming, a kingdom where we're on the top, a kingdom where it's all about us. It's all about like, uh, uh, us being uh, in, a, in a place of prominence. It's all about us and, and God eradicating and maybe killing off all of, our fr- all of the evil people that we're not friends with. It's a kingdom that's all about our health and our wealth and, and our happiness. Kingdom of God is coming. Kingdom come, come on. Then Jesus started talking in more specifics about this kingdom. He started to give some more details about what life in the kingdom looks like, what it feels like, and all of a sudden, the Jews started to look and feel a tad bit concerned. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is a kingdom of great paradox. The kingdom of God, the blessing of God, the power of God, oh, it's coming, but it's coming through befriending your enemy, not battling against him. It comes through simple, sacrificial acts of service, and not acts of huge military conquest. It comes through weakness and humility, and not wealth or honor. It comes through giving your stuff away, giving your money away, giving your life away so others can experience it. That's how the kingdom comes. It comes through dying to yourself, not not praying for the death of your enemy. It comes through carrying a cross, not carrying an agenda or a vendetta. You want kingdom to come? Well, it's coming, but that's how it's coming. If that wasn't enough, the kingdom is also a kingdom of great paradox. Or a great peculiarity, I'm sorry. He made it clear that this kingdom will be unique. It will be peculiar. It will be set apart from the other kingdoms in the world. And the people in the kingdom will do the same. They will think and act and live and love so different than anybody else. The people in my kingdom, Jesus says, people who will love this kingdom, people who will be most important in this kingdom, they won't seek to impress the people at the top. They will serve the people at the bottom. They won't seek to judge, take advantage of, or harm others. They will have mercy and defend others and seek justice for the sake of others. They won't strive to wear a crown. They'll be happy carrying a cross. They they will be the scum of the earth, the foolishness of the world, but in so doing, they will bring light and life to this world. That's my kingdom. You want in? You see why Jesus didn't have any friends? It's like the Romans, no, we're not cool with this. The Jews, what are you talking about? The kingdom of God language upset everybody it made everybody almost an enemy of him but he kept saying it and he said it again and again and again the kingdom of God it's here the power of God it's breaking in it's breaking through the God who rules heaven itself is coming to earth now I know you might not see I know you might not feel it I know I know you might not believe it with all of your heart but it's kind of this already but not yet principle It's as if Jesus is saying it's coming. It's kind of like God is impregnating the earth with his power. And you're going to feel it, right? Ladies, Who ever had a baby? You're going to feel some of those pains. But we're not going to see it in its entirety quite yet, but it's coming. Or it's kind of like when you get engaged. Like you're already intimate with that person. You're already committed to that person. You experience a depth of love with that person. Ah, but there's a greater expression coming. It's as if Jesus engaged himself to the world and he says, but wait, there's more for those of you who've done uh, graduate work, it's like when you complete your studies in, in February or March, but you don't get to walk across the stage and get your diploma until like June or July. Yes, there was something here. Yes, something significant happened there, but more is about to come. I think Jesus said that's what's happening in the kingdom. I'm going to show you some signs now. You're going to feel some birth pains. You're going to be excited about the engagement now, but you just wait for what's about to come. Oh i get kind of excited about this stuff i don't know about you guys i'm like what it's so countercultural, and it still was think about the message that he's saying rome's vision for your life and when i say rome i mean kind of the way of the world just just generic world it's vision for your life it's all about rome it's all about them they care less about you you're a pawn on the board and in the Jews' way of life, it was all about them. And that sounds better than all about Rome, but all about them was all about their prestige and their honor and their position in the kingdom. And Jesus comes and he says, if anyone is more important to you than God, then you're going to waste your life. If Rome is more important to you than God is, it's going to be a life that's wasted. And if you are more important than God is, if you're at the center of your world, then it's going to be a wasted life. You've got to put God at the center, he said. When the kingdom of God is the kingdom that you live in, the kingdom that you live for, it changes everything. And here's the thing. You can't live in all three kingdoms at the same time. You can't kind of have Rome and then kind of live for yourself. And then, hey, I'll, I'll be in Jesus' kingdom on Sunday. Awesome. It's awesome. He's like, no, you got to live in the kingdom every day. got to choose, he said, whom you'll serve. So his message proved that he was not like the others. His miracles proved he was not like the others. And there's one final thing that proved the same thing, and that's his ministry. I kind of mentioned it before, I, I butchered it, but the common Jewish understanding was that at some point God would come down and establish this kind of Jewish nation that would rule and reign over the earth. And all of the, the enemies of, of the Jewish nation would be killed off. I was trying to think of what like a modern day equivalent would be is if we went to a Broncos game and all the Raiders, Seahawks, Charger, Chief fans were just all dead. <laughs> like, that's a great game to watch, Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. If someone just listens to that out of context, that's going to sound really bad. All the enemies are destroyed. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were looking forward to. they are the only ones and the most important ones. And Jesus is like, ah, it's not how it is at all, guys. Jesus said the exact opposite, right? Page 331. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, his friend Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst, they were eating with him and his disciples. There are many who have followed him. When the teachers of the law, basically the preachers of the day, the PhDs of the law, when they saw him eating with the lowest of the low, they asked the disciples, why does this guy eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus ain't like the others. He is so different than everybody else. The more unsavory the character, the more at ease they seem to feel around Jesus. People that everybody hated to be around, Jesus loved to be around. Social outcasts, streetwalkers, despised military officers, a greedy tax man, sexually broken and confused women, weak and helpless children, religious mutts, short people and midgets like Ryan and Nathan. He loved to be around them. Yeah, I had to get you back for last week, 16 months and a year, mm-hmm. But the people that everybody else despised, Jesus delighted in. Those who were appalling to everybody else were for some reason attracted to Jesus. And in contrast, and it's kind of scary to put ourselves in this place, but in contrast, he got a pretty chilly response from the guys who went to church every Sunday. We didn't like him so much. Now, stop and think about this for a second. The only perfect person in history loved to be around imperfect people. The most powerful person of all time surrounded himself intentionally with powerless people. God himself felt comfortable around the ungodly. How could that be? Well, those who have it all together, those who are at the top of the food chain, the top of the org chart, they they don't see their need for a savior. They already think they have a savior. It's themselves. But those who have been used and abused, neglected and negated, discarded and disregarded, they know they need a savior and Jesus was happy to be of service to them. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount on page 340 in this week's chapter, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, he basically says this, lucky are the unlucky Lucky are the unlucky, because when you're desperate, when you're broken, when you're empty, God can and will come and fix you and fill you up. So lucky when you find yourself in an unlucky position. The Old Testament message was basically, unless you're a Jew, you're a nobody, and you should be rejected. Well, Jesus comes down and he says, in heaven's eye, nobody is a nobody, and God will never reject rejects. Wow. Now, he came for the rich, he came for the elite, he came for those people, he came for everybody but he wanted to make sure that you saw he came for this end of the spectrum too and maybe primarily for the bottom end of the spectrum. This should change the way we present ourselves, don't you think? I mean, we try so hard to present this squeaky clean image that we have it all together, that we're not struggling with anything, that we're not messed up and broken. Yet guys, that's who Jesus likes to be with. When you act like you have it all together, it's like, yeah, man, forget you. Anybody wanna come to dinner and struggling with sin? Come on. Maybe we should be more honest about how we're really doing because Jesus loves to be with people who are honest about how they're doing. It's a change probably who we hang out with, don't you think? not sure if you've been um, watching the news this week, but Pope Francis is making a lot, of, a lot of headlines, and for good reason. This is an incredible man with an absolutely incredible heart. He's turned a lot of heads because he truly loves. Imagine this, one of the most powerful men in all the world, right? Head of the largest religious group in all the world. He loves spending time with sick people. He loves spending time with broken people, homeless people, destitute people, marginalized people. He loves to do it. In fact, in Washington, they put together this huge meal for him this last week with the lawmakers, and he said, I'd rather go spend time with the lawbreakers. And they didn't know what to do with that. Uh, well, uh, And people didn't know what to do with Jesus either for the very same reason. And and Pope Francis, it's an amazing example. It's an amazing witness. But that shouldn't be odd to us. That shouldn't come across as weird to us. That's the example that's been set for us. That's what we should be doing. We should be emulating Jesus in that way, emulating Pope Francis in that way. See, the ministry of Jesus and who we hung around with and how we talked about him and cared for him, it proves he's not like the others. He's not like all the R2s on the page. He is so unique. So, his message, his miracles, and his ministry. That's the life of Jesus. Now, I, this was hard to preach through the entire life of Jesus in one week. I wouldn't suggest doing this at home. But what do we do with this stuff? What, 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 do, we, what do we do with this stuff? How do we, how do we take this stuff now and, and apply it to our lives? I mean, what do we do with the guy who is so different, so powerful, so subversive, so polarizing, so loving, so kind, so radical in his approach? What do we do with the guy who performs miracles? What do we do with the guy who preaches a countercultural message? What do we do with the guy who ministers to people we avoid or pretend that we're not? What do we do with that? Well, I think chapter twenty-four gives us the answer. We have three options. On page three forty-four, Jesus performed one of his miracles. I told you about those two thousand demons. Yeah, he cast them out, and after he did that. It says this, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Literally, it says the people asked Jesus to leave them alone. So that's one option that you have. You can just ask Jesus to leave you alone. Like the people in the story, you can can prefer your nice, neat, little, safe, and predictable life. And so when Jesus comes up, and it's scary, and it's unknown, and you're not exactly sure what he's going to do or how he's going to mess things up, you can just say, leave me alone, man. I don't want anything to do with you. That's an option that you have available to you. On page 345, at the bottom, we learn what our second option is. told you about that little girl that he raised from the dead. Well, when he comes up and he says, she's not dead, guys, she's only sleeping, the text says this. They laughed in his face. They laughed at him. So you can ask Jesus to leave you alone or you can just laugh at him. Or you can read about his miracles and his message about this kingdom coming and his concern for the marginalized. You can just chalk it up as crazy talk. You can just say it's some falsified fairy tale like a leprechaun or like a unicorn or a tooth fairy. And then you can just, just believe that it's just crazy and funny. You can laugh it off and go your own way. You can laugh in his face. Just like you would laugh in the face of a grown man who came to you and said, I'm a superhero. I'm like, sure you are, buddy. Have fun with that. You can laugh in his face and walk away. Or you can do it, read about on page 349. The people asked, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Basically, what do we do about you, Jesus? What do we do with you, Jesus? And Jesus answered this way. The work of God is simply this, to believe in the one that he has sent. On page 350, whoever believes in me will never thirst again. And then again, the very next line, very, very, truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Ask him to leave, laugh in his face, or believe this is true believe that he is the Lord hopefully you spent all month just memorizing the passage that we chose I gave you an easy one I got softball pitch for God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have life starting now and going for all of eternity whoever believes in him so, ask him to leave, laugh in, his, laugh in his face, or believe that he's Lord. Those are the options. And I know that it's hard. I know believing is hard. I know it's hard to believe that all this crazy stuff is true. It's hard to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did all that he claimed to have done. It's hard not to be weirded out by this stuff. It's hard not to be scared of it or amused by it. But this morning, I think he's asking all of us for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, do you believe it? Do you believe this is true? Do you believe I performed all those miracles and that's how it will be one day on all the earth? Do you believe there is another kingdom, a better kingdom, a more significant kingdom out there, and are you living for it? Do you believe that? And do you believe that the least of these are the most important to me? Do you believe it? Belief is hard, isn't it? My wife got into some cleaning products recently, and they're pretty cool. It's like you don't have to use these extra uh, things. Okay, I'm going to talk away out of expertise here. You don't have to use extra products to get stuff clean. It's just the rags themselves. The rags themselves have this disinfecting quality to them. And it's true also for your body. Like, it's just this wash rag. And the claim is, you don't have to use soap if you use this wash rag. You don't even got to use shampoo if you use the wash rag, especially for me. You just use the rag. And it cleans you better than soap. Do I believe it? Every morning in the shower, I have to ask myself, do I believe this? I see the bar of soap. I see the rag. But belief changes behaviors, doesn't it? When you really believe something, you act like it. So do you believe it? Do you believe Jesus did this? Do you believe that he said this? Do you believe that these things are important to him? Uh, This morning, I want to end with a closing prayer. And as I do that, I'm gonna ask a couple of you to step out in faith. And maybe this is the first time this morning you're you're ever gonna proclaim or declare a belief in Jesus. That you hear about the miracles, you hear about the message, you hear about the ministry, and you you want to this morning say for the very first time, I believe it. As I say this prayer, I'm gonna have a line in there where you just raise your hand. Just kind of show the Lord, I believe it. Just follow along in my prayer. And for those of us who have said that prayer many times, those of us who have raised our hands many a time, You don't need to raise this morning, but I just want you to recommit and re-proclaim, re-declare, if you will, this belief in Jesus. So let me lead us in that prayer time now. God, you are an incredible God. There is no God like you, heaven above or earth below. And we are amazed by you, God. Uh, There are so many things that we read about in this morning's chapter that overwhelm us and that are indescribable, Lord, and that you describe them so perfectly in the Gospels, God. You came down and you performed these amazing miracles, and it's hard to believe it, God. It's hard to believe that, that dead people were walking around and that sick people were well again and that paralyzed people were okay again. It's hard to believe that, God. It's hard to believe that really happened, but this morning we say with all that we can and as best we can, we believe it. We believe that happened. And God, we hear about this message of another kingdom and a, and a better Savior in a different way to live this life, not for Rome, not for myself, but for you. And it's so hard to believe that that's the way to life. It's so hard to live that way. It's so hard to deny myself and live for other people, God. And yet this morning I proclaim, as I hope this church does, that we believe in that. We believe that is the way. We believe that you are the way. And God, the ministry that you had to everybody, but especially to the weak and to the broken, oh God, it's so hard for us to see ourselves in that group and then it's so hard to go put ourselves in that group. But this morning, God, we proclaim and, and we declare maybe for the very first time that we believe, we believe that's who you came for and that we're in that group and now you want us to go spend time with that group. God, we believe that's how we will see and experience and bring the kingdom. This morning, God, there are those in this room who have never publicly or formally declared a belief in you and as John three sixteen states, that's all it takes. In light of all that you have done, all you ask us to do is believe it. We don't have to justify it. We don't have to defend it. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to rationalize it. We don't have to be able to teach it. We just have to believe it. So this morning, those for the very first time will be raising their hand, God. They raise their hand in this moment and they say that I believe. I believe that Jesus is who He claim to be. I believe that he did all that the gospels describe that he did. And I believe that he is life for me. I believe it. I believe it this morning maybe for the very first time God I've just kind of been running away from you I've been acting like this is crazy talk I've asked you to leave me alone for a long time but this morning God for the very first time I raise my hand and I say I believe I believe this is true I believe you are the Lord and I believe you have best interest in mine and God for the rest of us for the rest of us who have maybe made that declaration before we say again maybe for the 10,000th time, we believe, we believe, we believe. We believe this is true and right and the best story there is. We believe it and we proclaim that belief to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for those who raised your hands. Uh, If you did this morning and wanna talk more, come find me. We'll have some Stephen ministers down here that would love to talk with you more about uh, what that declaration of belief is all about. So proud of you for doing that. And thank you, church, for the rest of you saying that.